Well, here we are. Two weeks from tomorrow is Christmas Eve. Is that good news or bad news? Good news. Okay. It, it, moves, it moves pretty quickly. No question. Um, we're going to spend a little time this morning in our service uh, uh, focusing on God's Word. And we're beginning a new series where we're thinking about... Oh, I'm sorry. Kids are supposed to go out right now. Um, through second grade? Five years old through second grade? I'm doing well. Wow. Thank you, Michelle, for your yups. <laughs> so, um, we're going to be thinking about Christmas gifts. That's a pretty common image at this time of year. Um, a lot of us already have these in our homes, uh, decorated and set aside. And perhaps there's something underneath right now. Perhaps there's nothing underneath right now. But as the weeks go by, it will accelerate. And suddenly on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, there will be lots of packages And we're going to use that image just a bit in our own spiritual lives. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to open God's Word to a number of different places to consider exactly what it is that God gives to us in the coming of His Son. When He gave us His Son, what did God give us? We're going to try to explore that in a number of different ways in the next few weeks. Grandpa Holly, next May, it will be 50 years. He was 64, and I was 8 when he died. That's a long time ago. My images are limited, and uh, they're a child's images. But his name was Grandpa Holly. That's how I knew him. He was my tall grandpa. Grandpa Carl, my immigrant grandfather, was, was from a different world than him. He was five foot six, Grandpa Carl. Um, but Grandpa Holly, the immigrant's son, was six foot ten. Six foot ten in an era when there just weren't that many tall guys around. And, and he wasn't Dutch and he wasn't from Grand Rapids. He had nothing going for him. But somehow or another, that's what he was. And uh, like I said, Grandpa Holly was how I knew him. But there were other names out there for him. Holly wasn't the name that he was called when he was a little kid. It was a nickname he picked up because of a favorite uh, baseball player back when. But I knew him by a different name. I knew him by his stage name as well. Stage. Yeah, he was an entertainer. Um, The way he made his living for decades, through his whole life really, was as an entertainer. He was a comedian and a musician. He played uh, trumpet and different horns and tuba. That was a a major instrument that he played. Um, He played the violin or the fiddle a little bit. I don't know that he was any good at it, but he had one. I never saw him or heard him play that. And then... Most of all, he played the bass. If you ever see me wandering around with a bass here and playing every once in a while, it's Grandpa Holly's bass that I play. And he was a comedian, too. Six foot ten, if you're not really coordinated, and basketball's really not that big a sport to begin with anyways in the years we're talking about, what do you do? You look a little funny everywhere you go. You stand out, and God gave him a face that was just a little different. And so, maybe you try to make people laugh. So you wear funny clothes, and you are able, even with that height, to do pratfalls. And you know how to look really silly. And you know how to make people laugh. And so that's what he did. And when he was on the stage, on the road, in nightclubs, um, in concerts, New York City, and out in the middle of the Dakotas, all over the place, 
even in a film or two, though I have no access to information about what movies he was in, but I know he was in a couple. But mostly it was radio, and when I was growing up, it was TV. And wherever he was, his stage name was Cousin Tilford. I don't know anything about it. I think it was supposed to sound silly. Somehow or another, it fit the six foot ten guy. But there was one other name that he was never called by. Nobody ever used that name at all. It was the name his parents gave him when he was born, but nobody used it. But I used to always be fascinated by it because it sounded like it had so much dignity, and my grandpa never looked like he had a lot of dignity. His name that he was given as a child was pretty close to a George Herbert Walker Bush kind of a name. The kind of name you listen to and he's like, wow, maybe that's an important person, walk around with a name like that. So Holly, her cousin Tilford, was Arthur Emmanuel Swanson when he was born. And I was like, wow, wonder why my parents didn't give me an impressive name. Craig Allen Swanson, yeah. It'll do. But Arthur Emmanuel Swanson. That middle name especially stuck out to me. I paid attention to it. I I listened to it. I wondered about it. And of course, I was somewhat familiar with it, as maybe many of you are as well, but maybe some of you are not. We're not really familiar with what it's all about. I was familiar with it from the time I was little, from the time I first heard his whole name. Nobody ever called him Grandpa Arthur. Nobody called him Art. Nobody ever called him M. It just was never used, but when I heard those names, I thought about it, and I knew it because of some songs. Um, I think we're going to sing one a little while from now. Maybe you know it. Um, You're welcome to try to sing with me. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lonely exile here Until the Son of God appears Rejoice, rejoice Emmanuel Shall come to thee, O Israel It's another Christmas song that we sing a lot. It's called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You might not know the second verse, but it goes like this. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And all of that, all those references, Grandpa's name, which I'm not sure it meant much to him at all, through almost all the years of his life, right up to the very end, but it meant something to his mom and dad. They were Jesus followers, but their son was not. He was not. His name meant nothing to him, almost his entire life. Maybe that's why he never used it, although I don't know. Would you go around Emmanuel? That's a tough one. But, uh, but back when, it came from a different source, a promise given by a prophet of God to a king in Judah almost about 800 years before Jesus walked this earth. The king was named Ahaz. His grandpa was Uzziah, who'd been king forever in, in Israel and in Judah. 
He'd been in charge, he'd been reigning on the throne in Jerusalem, and he was the, the source of stability. If you rule a country for 50 years, wow, that's a long stretch. And all things be, being equal, he was a pretty good king. His son Jotham was pretty decent too. Jotham's son, Uzziah's grandson, Ahaz, was anything but. He was the ruler in Jerusalem of God's people, but he was not one of God's people, not in any real way. God didn't mean a lot to him. He didn't look to God. He didn't ask for God's help. He didn't ask for God's opinion, let alone God's command. It just didn't matter to him very much. One day, he became aware of a plot of some neighboring nations, including the estranged sister country, Israel. Some nations were getting together, and they were conspiring to take Judah down and to cause problems for Ahaz. And God said, Ahaz is in that line of David as king of his people. I want to encourage him and know that I've not forgotten my promise to David. And I will exercise my promise to David through my promise to him. And so he sent, he sent Isaiah to talk to him. It was out in a water spot. And he came up to talk to him. And he told him basically, hey, Ahaz, take it easy. Relax. Calm down. Don't worry right now. It wasn't quite don't worry, be happy. It was don't worry, trust God. Don't worry, listen to what God has to say. Don't try to fix this on your own. Don't try to figure this out on your own. God will take care of you. The nations you're worried about right now, they're not going to be any big deal real soon. Nothing to worry about. But when Ahaz saw Isaiah, and when Ahaz heard Isaiah's words, Ahaz basically said, Isaiah, I got this under control. I know what I'm going to do. I already have the plot in my head. I already know the nation I'm going to build an alliance with. I've got this covered. It's going to be okay. And Isaiah said to Ahaz, Ahaz, God wants you to ask for a sign so that you know, you really know you can believe him and trust him. And Ahaz made like pious, he said, I would never ask God for a sign. I believe everything he says. I would never ask God for a sign. Plus, it says in the Bible, you're not supposed to ask God for a sign. Like Ahaz had ever quoted the Bible in his life before. And Isaiah said to him again, but God's telling you, God's saying, you can ask me for a sign and I'll give it to you. And Ahaz said, thank you, but no thank you. I got this together. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is what it says right after Ahaz turned the prophet away. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And that was it. The prophet spoke the word. Ahaz heard it. It meant nothing to Ahaz at all. He went on and he did his own thing. And he experienced the judgment of God in his life. But even those words, we don't know exactly how they connected with what went on. There was a child born sometime very soon after this prophecy was given. Was it the son of the king, Hezekiah? Was it the son of Isaiah, the prophet? Was it someone else? We don't know. What Isaiah said basically was, right now there is a young girl who's a virgin, and before very long... She's going to have a child. Things happen quickly. She's going to get married. She's going to get pregnant. She's going to have a kid. In that short span of time, I want you to know 
that under God's control, things will be okay. And those words sat there. But there was something more in God's promise through Isaiah than what was fulfilled in that exact moment that we don't even know the details of. There was something in that word and in that name, Emmanuel, which promised a greater promise and someone else coming in the future. It was just a few pages later that the same prophet would talk about someone who was going to come. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne, the one Ahaz had for a little period of time. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's where the words come from, from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. But what do they mean and what were they about? Right now, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read together or listen together to God's word from the very first book in the New Testament. Go for it. Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And it tells almost the story of the birth of Jesus, but it sort of doesn't quite tell it. It tells us more about what led up to it and the days that we're anticipating that coming. So let's read this. This is how the birth of Jesus and Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name, Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the scene. It's a familiar one to many of us, but maybe you've forgotten or maybe you've never really heard the story entirely. But it's all around the birth of Jesus. And in Matthew 1.18, Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. But the word he actually uses isn't birth. It's more like the origin of Jesus. It's like Matthew is trying to tell us that in some ways Jesus coming into life on this earth was so normal and so typical. There are a lot of things in common. The very moment of birth was just about the same as your birth or my birth, except that his was in a stable and ours was probably in a hospital room. But the actual birth itself was the same. And yet... There was something different about his origin. And so Matthew decides to tell that story. And he does it by looking at everything through the eyes of Joseph. Joseph, a man who was betrothed. That's the word that was used back then. Betrothed to marry this young girl. To be 
her husband and for her to be his wife. Betrothal was something like engagement plus, but not quite marriage. In our world, there's engagement and there's marriage. And I'm not always sure how much these things mean. Meanings change in cultures. But once upon a time, um, two people got engaged and there was a clear difference in their status from before till after they were engaged. And yet, an engagement was something you could, in fact, break just like that. Whether you did it quickly or you did it shortly before the ceremony, whether you bid it before you send out wedding invitations or after, it could be done. There was nothing that prevented you from doing that. Engagement led to marriage. Marriage was the legal moment. Marriage was the moment of commitment. That was when things got a little more sealed and a little more bonded, way more sealed and way more bonded. But back when, 2,000 years ago, around Jerusalem and Nazareth and, and other places, when someone began the process of moving towards marriage, they didn't become engaged, they became betrothed. And from that moment on, there was something substantial in their commitment. They were not married. They did not live together. They did not share the same home. They did not share the same bed. In the, in the practice and the mores and the rules of the time, they did not sleep with each other, have sex with each other. But they might call each other husband and wife. They might call each other husband and wife publicly. And if someone wanted to break a betrothal, it was a legal matter. It was closer to a divorce. Betrothal led to marriage. That's when the home began, when husband and wife who'd already been pledged to each other and committed to each other and legally bonded with each other came into a home and took up a life in the same space, in the same house, in the same bed, and created the same family. Matthew uh, tells the story of how Joseph is betrothed to Mary. He's looking forward to marrying her, best we can tell. We would hope he is. And suddenly, he becomes aware of something. It's not that she had come and talked to him. It's just that sometimes, with some people, it's more apparent than others, and it was apparent with Mary. It was clear. She was pregnant. A baby was growing inside of her. And Joseph didn't know anything about it. Joseph knew one thing about the baby growing inside the woman he was betrothed to, whom he was going to marry. And that's this, that he personally had nothing to do with the existence of that child. What would you do? What would you think? What would you feel in a moment like that? I don't know for sure, but I don't think we're way off if we just make a couple of guesses. That Joseph felt betrayed, that Joseph felt hurt, that Joseph was heartbroken, that Joseph might have had some anger, and words used to describe Jesus, maybe righteous anger, that Joseph thought about it and wrestled with it and decided, you know what, there's no way I can go forward in my right mind with the marriage that I'd once intended. But at the same time, as Joseph thought about Mary, a young girl who he cared for, who he wanted to spend his life with, he did not want to destroy her. He did not want to 
rake her over the coals. He, he did not want to make an example of her. He didn't want her to be the talk of everybody. It was going to happen somewhat anyways, but he didn't want to make it any worse. He didn't want to do what he could do legally. Joseph was, as we would say, a good man. So it was his purpose to end this relationship. End it legally, he had to do that, but he wanted to do it quietly. He, didn't want to make, he wanted to make as little a deal of it as he possibly could, so he would not humiliate, so he would not hurt, so he would not make an example of Mary. He was like, this is tragic enough as it is. I don't know whose baby it is. I don't know who's going to raise it. I know I can't. I don't know who's going to spend life with her and love her. I know I can't. And so that was his intention. But one night when he went to sleep, um, I don't know about you, I, I don't really remember my dreams, and I've never discerned any meaning in any dream I've ever had of significance for my life. But maybe some of you have. I don't know. Every once in a while in the Bible, clearly, dreams were a means of communication. God used some of these dreams. And that is what happened this night with Joseph. In fact, in his dream, there was a vision. It was as if an angel, a messenger of God, actually appeared to, to Joseph, but not appeared in his waking hours, appeared to him in his sleeping hours, so that when he was sound asleep, he saw and he heard these words. And the angel said, and came to Joseph and said, Joseph, I understand what you're thinking and I understand what you're feeling. God does too. He gets it, but you are lacking some important information. You know the baby growing inside of Mary right now is not your responsibility. You had nothing to do with this child. But God knows where this child is from because God's Holy Spirit is the miraculous source of the existence of this child within Mary. And you can trust Mary. And you can trust me. I don't want you to divorce her. I don't want you to end this. I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to trust me. I want you to commit to marrying Mary. And I want you to commit to raising a child who's not your biological son, but who will be your legal son. And beyond that, Joseph, I want you to name him Jesus. And Jesus was a very common name. It's common in certain cultures today even, somewhat. It's not common in the culture I grew up in at all. I only heard about one Jesus growing up. And it was Jesus from 2,000 years ago. But when Jesus was born, there were lots of Jesuses around. It was a common name. In fact, it was like the Greek form of an older name, a Hebrew name, Joshua, Yahashua. It meant Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. And so the angel said to Joseph, Joseph, I want you to name this child Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then these other words. We don't know if the words were spoken by the angel in the dream, or if they were Matthew's addition in his interpretation. But verses 22, can we put them back up on the screen? Verses 22 and 23 are the heart of what we want to just think about this morning. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. I want you to just think about something right now, okay? Um, let, me, let me break the news to you and, and to me and to all of us here this morning. The world has not been waiting 
for our arrival on the planet. Okay? Do, do you realize that short of your own parents waiting for your arrival, and maybe some relatives, and maybe some grandparents, there was no prof- prophetic word about you being the answer to the, to the needs and the concerns of a nation of people or a humanity. Okay? So that doesn't shock you, does it? Okay? We, we happened. Maybe in God's mind, there was this, before the foundation of the world, a sense that we were going to exist and he had a purpose for our lives. And I certainly believe that. But the world has not been waiting for Craig Swanson to show up. And you can fill in your own name too. And that is not to diminish any of us, but it is to remind all of us that our importance is real, but our importance by ourselves is not gargantuan. We're not the answer to the needs of the world. But there was a child born 2,000 years ago who was anticipated. He'd been anticipated for centuries, for thousands of years. That there was something wrong on the planet, wrong in the race, wrong in individuals. And it was something that could not be corrected by human beings working on their own. There was nothing human beings could do to make things right. There was nothing we could do to fix the ultimate problems. That's very frustrating for us. You ever have situations that you can fix? Don't you love those? I love things I can fix. Do you have situations in your life or in your world that you cannot fix? You do. We all do. And, and they're very frustrating. They're very frustrating. And what this prophecy points to is that there is something wrong in the race and wrong in human life that we cannot fix on our own. Try as hard as we might. Use our brains if we're gifted with great wisdom and understanding and perception and and, and ingenuity. We cannot come up with anything that will fix the fundamental problem of human life. But there is someone who's been promised, who's coming who will save his people from their sins. And the prophet's been talking about him. And look at verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Just consider a couple of things. Well, the first prophecy referenced someone who was a virgin at the time something was happening, but eventually was not. The story here is that Jesus' birth fulfills a prophecy to a greater degree than, than anybody even anticipated or would have immediately thought of. It wasn't just that, that a virgin, uh, a person who's a virgin will eventually have a child, but that a virgin who continues to be a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. Would you call that miraculous? Yes. Does that happen every day? No. In fact, I believe it's happened once in human history. Do you struggle with the miraculous? Here's what the virgin birth tells us. It tells us that God entering the world, God entered as one of us, but he was more than one of us. There's something different about his origin. If you studied him, if Jesus was here, if a physician could step up and test him and look at him and take him through some of the the technological machines to, to study bodies downtown at the hospital, all the kinds of things that mark us would mark him. He was as human as could be, but he was more than human. And so the source wasn't 
someone who was caused by two people, but caused by God working with a young mom. A virgin birth. A virgin conception. And that's actually how God works in our lives as well, in a miraculous way, because God desires to bring to birth in our lives his son and his spirit. And it doesn't happen by our trying hard, and it doesn't happen by our working hard, and it doesn't happen by us trying to follow Jesus and get it right, but it comes by saying yes to what God wills to do, which is to bring a new birth in our lives. And it's amazing what God does. There was a coal miner back in the 18th century who started following Jesus. And someone challenged him about his belief in the miracles. And they said to him, do you believe that Jesus changed water into wine? And the guy said, I don't know. I think so. Because I know that in my house, he's changed beer into furniture. A miner whose life was turned upside down is as equally miraculous as what God might do anywhere in transforming. But it all stems back to the Son of God entering this world as a human child with a human mom but no human father. And then I want you to look at the meaning of this word for just a moment. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the, one of the Latin words I used, learned when I was a kid, I learned a couple of Latin words about God. That he was omniscient, that he was all-knowing, that he was omnipotent, that he was all-powerful, potent, and that he was omnipresent. He was present everywhere. That God is not limited by space and time because he's not a physical creature. He's a spirit, and he's an infinite spirit. And so God is present everywhere. And there is something powerful and something significant and something meaningful in knowing that. That we can't get away from God. Psalm 139 tells us wherever we are, wherever we wake up, we never get away from God. God is always with us. And yet, just a general idea, even a truth, sometimes it's difficult for it to get down to the human heart and the human life to help us really understand what that means. And so the prophet Isaiah gave a promise and it was fulfilled when Jesus was born and lived. That God's not just generally present everywhere, but in this life, he is present fully, as nowhere else. That when someone would look at this child, someone would be reminded, this child would be a sign that, yes, God is with us, but it's more than that. That this child actually would be God with us. That when you look at Jesus... When you look at him as a baby, when you look at him as a man, when you listen to the words he spoke, when you consider his death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead, you are seeing the presence of God in human flesh as close to us as can be found anywhere. And that makes all the difference. There was a man who had nowhere to go. He had no place to belong. He was A sick man, he was a leper. He had leprosy. It was a disease that attacked his own body, but it also meant that he had no place in a community, no place in a town, no place with a family, no home to call home, no place in the temple at all. Wherever he went, he needed to call unclean. 
And people kept their distance. And he'd utterly given up hope that there would ever be a place for him. But he built up maybe just a tiny bit of hope. And he'd heard about this man and he approached this Jesus. And he got close enough to say to him, Jesus, if you want to, you can make me whole. And he thought to himself, why would he even want to? But Jesus looked at him. And Jesus said, I want to. And Jesus touched him. And Jesus made him whole. Do you know what changed that man's life was God with him in the flesh. That close and that personal. There was a woman who had been visiting doctors for a dozen years. She had been trying to get any help she could. She was bleeding and she would not stop. And her life was miserable. And she felt excluded as well. And one day Jesus was close by. There were lots of people close by. And she watched him and she approached and she said to herself, if I just touch his clothes, maybe it'll help. And she reached out and touched him. And in that moment, something changed and she experienced some level of healing. But Jesus felt something. And he turned around and he looked and he looked at the faces around him and he said, Somebody just touched me. Who touched me? And his disciples thought he was ridiculous. What do you mean? There's people all around you, Jesus. People are bumping into each other all over. What do you mean, who touched you? Lots of people touched you. And Jesus didn't listen to them. He kept looking, and finally his eyes met hers, and she walked up to him and got down low, and she said, I'm sorry. And Jesus said, don't be sorry. You're whole. I care about you. There were two men who were being crucified. They were being executed. They were on either sides of Jesus. And in that moment, one of them was like King Ahaz. He said, I don't care. But another one listened and looked. And he knew the presence of God with him. He looked God in the eye. There were men and women, but especially men on that night, who'd been so close to Jesus and following him, And they'd heard rumors that the tomb was empty and and maybe something big important had happened. But all they knew was that their leader had been killed a couple days before. And word on the street was that there were people looking for them too. And so they were hiding out in a room, an upper room in a building in Jerusalem. They didn't know where to go. They were as afraid as could be. And suddenly, he was with them. It actually makes a difference when somebody is with you. Do you know what it's like to be alone? And you travel internationally? Do you know what it's like to go to a foreign country and land in an airport and step off and they're speaking another language and you don't know anybody? You don't know how to talk or communicate. You're thankful for English, but it still doesn't always seem to help very much. And you feel like an idiot. And, and it's just a little uncomfortable because everything's so different. Do you know what makes all the difference? is to have someone there to meet you and be with you who speaks your language, who will interpret everything for you, and they will not leave your side. I was sitting next to the Ziegelbauers the other day. I remembered how nice and wonderful it was to fly to Africa, to Cameroon, to Yaoundé a couple of years ago and to see Ron. Oh, everything's okay. Somebody's with me. But what if it's God 
who's with you. Um, 50 years ago, a little over 50 years ago, uh, a woman by the name of Johnny, maybe some of you know her name, Johnny Erickson Tata is how we know of her, was a young girl in the 1960s. She was swimming and jumping into water, and she made a fateful dive, and she struck something. And from that moment on to this moment, over 50 years later, she's been paralyzed, a quadriplegic. You know what it's like to be a quadriplegic? I don't know. I don't know at all. I can only imagine what a hard journey and hard life it has been. A couple of years ago, she wrote a book, actually 20 years ago, about, she wrote a book about her life and about God. And I just want to share a little bit of this. It's July 30th, 1997. It's an anniversary, and there's an anniversary cake with a cupcake with a candle on top of it. Make a wish, my husband Ken says, half-jokingly. He was marking the 30th anniversary of my diving accident with a bit of humor. After all, there aren't many people who would celebrate breaking their neck. And yet we both knew I was still learning from my wheelchair, and it had kept me leaning hard on God. Hurry up, the wax is getting on the icing, Ken urged, licking his fingers. I didn't know what to wish. Wow, three decades since I broke my neck, since I graduated from high school. I've got it, I announced, as Ken pushed the cupcake nearly into my face. I wish you'd go with me to my 30th high school reunion. Aw, he groaned, do you really like going to those things? Yes, I declared, and I want you there with me so my friends can finally meet you. He gave me a smirk as I blew out the candle. It had been years since I had touched base with my peers from choir, clubs, young life, hockey, and lacrosse. And I looked forward to seeing the girls who had stuck closest to me after my accident, mainly Jackie and Diana. I had to chuckle as I thought of the time they tossed me into the front seat of Jackie's Camaro like a sack of potatoes. We didn't even know enough to wear seatbelts, and when we braked for a stoplight, I virtually slid on the floor. That reminded me of the time that Diana sat with me in a boat on Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean ride. We were floating along just fine until we heard a waterfall ahead and looked up to see the boat in front of us diving straight down. And Diana quickly leaped on top of me, pinning her body against me, and together we screamed all the way down, plunging to the bottom of the waterfall. I never went on that ride again. Those had been carefree days, and of course the days before that weren't so happy. I remember the long-ago night when, as a frightened 17-year-old, I lay face-up in a shadowy hospital room, wondering if God had abandoned me. The hallways were dark and visiting hours over, and then Jackie, my friend, my share of milkshakes, hockey sticks, and boyfriends, climbed into bed next to me. She'd instinctively known the only thing that would bring comfort And in the midst of that dark night, she sang. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And over the past three decades, whenever anyone asks me what was the turning point, I describe that moment. It was the best thing anyone could have done for a paralyzed girl. Lying for long hours in bed, I'd recited verses about God's purposes and suffering, but their truths never reached the core of my anguish. Answers and reasons, good though they are, weren't reaching the problem where it hurt in my gut and my heart. 
I was asking God why, like a child looking up into the face of her daddy. I wasn't looking for answers so much then as I was looking for daddy, an almighty image of my own father who would pick me up, pat pat me on the back, and tell me everything would be okay. My unspoken plea was for assurance, fatherly assurance, that my world wasn't all nightmarish chaos. I was in need of a daddy bigger than my own father to cover me and give me himself. I didn't realize it then, but my heavenly father was doing just that. He was being my rock and deliverer. Whenever Diana read to me from Psalm 18, he was being my wonderful counselor when she read to me from Isaiah 9. I didn't grasp it at first, but if God is truly the one at the center of the universe, holding it together so it doesn't split apart at the seams, if everything moves, breathes, and has its being in him, as it says of God in Acts 17, he can give us no greater answer or reason or gift than himself. And that's what Jackie helped me to grasp that night. God didn't give words, he gave the word. Jesus, the bruised and bloody man of sorrows. God wants you, not just to have an idea in your head or even a belief in your heart, but he wants you to be close to him and so he came close to you. He became one of us and he entered this world And he was the fulfillment of a promise, a promise that met a need, that we have a need not to be alone, and that nobody else can ultimately match that need, that he would live the life we've lived so that he could experience what we experience, so that he could meet us at the point of our weakness and the point of our guilt and the point of our brokenness and the point of our our need, and that he could be with us as well in the moments of our joy and our celebration. The next time you're at a beautiful place like like the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon, I encourage you to think about this truth, that God not only made this world, but he became a part of it, and that he's with you by his spirit, and that you can celebrate what he made with him. Jesus, not a bad job. This is beautiful. But when you're hurt and hurting and needing, remember that this Jesus isn't around just for the good moments, but he's around for the worst of the moments. When we feel broken and when we feel like we're the victims, he's up on the cross with us. And when we are guilty and we are the failure and the problem, he's on that cross as well to meet our need, the one we can never make right on our own. What a miracle that a baby could be born to a mom who'd never had relations. But what a miracle this, that the almighty God of the universe who's perfect and powerful with an impressive name became one of us so close that he would meet us at the point of our need, like Johnny's or like yours or like mine. Emmanuel. Not just a sign that God is with us, but he is God with us. That close. We need never be alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for becoming one of us. Thank you for coming so close, right in the midst of our guilt, right in the midst of our need, right in the midst of our loneliness, and even to join us when it all seems right. 
May we whisper your name, Emmanuel, and explore what it means to know that the God who made us, who's worthy of everything, is a God who comes this close, face to face. Thank you. Amen.